So over the last couple of weeks, um, I've been using social media more than I normally would. Um, and to be honest, more than I'm comfortable with. Um, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes you find yourself just kind of sitting down and scrolling forever, right? Just going through and scrolling, 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 and you look up and the sun is already down, right? Um, and what I find interesting, and I've been noticing this over some period of time now, but you'll get kind of some mixed messages in social media, like a lot is coming at you at one time. So you'll find that you're scrolling one moment and there's breaking news, something is happening internationally or locally, right? And then you scroll down a little bit more and then there's a funny meme, some cat is doing something or you find somebody doing some craft or something like that, right? And then you scroll up a little bit more and then you see there's some family or friend announcement. And it just feels like there's this push and pull happening with us on social media, right? I've even seen a very, I would say, worrying trend where sometimes people try to narrate a very uh, challenging or tragic story and putting it to happy music, right? And it's just like, wait, am I, am I supposed to be happy that this thing happened or like what's happening here? And this is really weird juxtaposition is really, again, push and pull with us on social media. Now, are we supposed to be happy? Are we supposed to be sad? Are we supposed to be this? And we're, we're seeing it in seconds after each other, right? And what I think sociologists will tell us in the next few years, and they've started talking about this, is that it really starts to fragment our attention span. It really starts to fragment our minds, which is ironic because the whole point of why we claim to go to social media is to get an escape, right? We just need a little break. We need a little mental break from everything that's happening. And it's so hard to find joy in things like social media, in those kinds of escapes and vices, because the moment comes and goes. When the breaking news headline is gone, there's another one coming. Be assured of that. There's another funny video or crafty video that's going to pop up in a second. It's all going to be curated for you by the algorithm, so you don't have to worry about your next fix. And we've been talking over the past few weeks about this difference between happiness and joy. That happiness, it makes us feel good in the moment. And it's not a bad thing, but sometimes the moment just comes and goes. It's temporary and it's gained externally. But when we talk about joy, joy is this thing that's not circumstantial. It's not based on the things that we are going through. We have to be grounded internally. And for us as people of faith, as Christ followers, we have to be grounded in the faith of who God is and who God has called us to be and who we are in God, that we are his children. And so we've been through this series, Joy, going through the book of Philippians, where we understand that joy is not about getting our every desire and our every wish, but it's about finding contentment in every season of life that we go through. So again, we've been walking through the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul writes to the church in a town called Philippi. And um, Paul writes to them about how to have joy in the midst of both trials and triumphs. As they follow Jesus, they're going to experience hardships. They're going to experience high moments. But they were a people who were under oppression by Rome. And so they knew very intimately and very well what it means to have to seek joy, to have to push through the challenging circumstances of life. Now, um, today I want to talk about the risks the greatest risk, but I want to talk about it for us in, in terms of how we take risks for experiencing and embracing joy, because there's a risk to that, right? 
Speaking of, I am a very risk-averse person. <laughs> I, when I travel, yes, I will buy the extra travel insurance. Thank you very much. Um, refundable ticket? Absolutely, because what if something happens and I need to change my plans, right? Um, <laughs> very risk-averse. Speaking of planes again, I was sitting on a plane recently and um, you know, different parts of the world are coming out of the pandemic different ways and different times and not getting into all of that. But this young lady was sitting next to me on the plane. She was in the middle seat. I was at the window. And man, she had the time of her life sleeping mouth wide open, no mask on. And so I'm sitting there like, I ain't trying to catch COVID coming off a of vacation. That's not going to happen today. So I'm putting on one mask. I'm putting on another mask. I'm like wiping down and spraying. I'm just like, I ain't trying to risk nothing right now, right? I don't gamble, um, not because I'm super holy. I'm just not smart enough to do it. And I know that the odds of me losing are going to be very, very high. I don't know how to play numbers. I don't know what boxing means. Somebody please explain it to me, right? And for my life, I'm just going to speak personally here, that risk was a very challenging thing when it came to faith because I had to risk not having all the answers. I had to risk not having control of everything, right? That I had to embrace the mystery of God and all that that entails and that knowing that faith was not about trying to crack a code, but it was about a journey that I'm supposed to walk on, right? And so this is risk that comes along with trying to find joy as we follow Jesus. And so Paul continues to talk about this, and I want to read from our first passage today. Let's take a look at how he talks about the risk of his own ministry and, and those of his um, disciples and followers. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start there, verses 19 to 30. Paul is writing here to the people, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see things go with me, how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself may come soon. Now, Paul is writing this from jail now. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epiditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom I have sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Verse 27 here is really important. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and, know, and may have less anxiety. Amen to that. So then, welcome him in the name of the Lord with great joy and with honor, and honor people like him, because he also almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Now, again, this is a letter. When we read a lot of the New Testament, a lot of Paul's writings, these are letters that he's writing to people. So you can hear the intimacy here in these letters of just how much he cares for his community, but not only him, his companions, right? 
We see that Paul had such a commitment to these churches. He showed up even if he could not show up. He showed up for them in so many different ways than just being physically there. He had his, his, his companions and his followers who went with him, who ministered with him, that went to these different churches and attended to their needs, their spiritual needs. What I love about this, and that shows particularly how he talks about Epaphroditus and how he was almost ill and to the point of death, it shows that Paul and his companions were not doing this work of ministry from the outside. They knew very intimately what these people were going through. They themselves experienced hardships. They themselves knew what it was to go through a really hard time under an oppressive power. And so Paul is admonishing the church and saying, listen, this guy knows what you're going through, so welcome him. Welcome him in the name of the Lord with great joy. What he's saying is don't take for granted what people are doing for you. Don't take for granted the story that people may have because people have gone through some stuff, and I'm talking to us now. People have gone through some stuff just so that they can come out on the other side and tell you of what God has done. And maybe you're one of those people. You've been through some things. You know what it is like to go through hardships, but you keep going because you know that there's a story to tell of how good God is. And so what Paul is saying here is that this ministry is some risky business, but, but we're about this life. We're going to do it because we love you and we know that God has a purpose and plan for you in Philippi. Very, very risky stuff, right? Very, very risky things to write and to say to these people because, again, you don't even know who's listening. He's sending this letter to them, and they're reading it aloud in the congregation. I want to pivot to a story in the Gospels where Jesus also tells and says some risky things. Um, he tells some risky stories known as parables. And these parables would bring the listeners joy if they would receive it and apply it to their lives. And so I want to look at one of these parables today. It's a common one for us, and I don't want it to gloss over us. I want us to really hear and see the story in a different way today. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it says, on occasion, an expert of the law came and stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem. And at this point, let's pause there for a second. When Jesus don't answer the question, I just imagine people were just like, oh, my gosh, he's telling another story. <laughs> like, he can't ever. Anyway. In reply, Jesus began, <laughs> a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to a place, saw him pass by on the other side. 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and saw him and took pity on him. Let's pause here again. The word pity that you see there is not how we kind of see it today, where you kind of look down on somebody like, oh, uh, so sorry for them. The word in Greek actually means how you feel something so deep within your bowels, right? 
that that is something that's so unsettling that you feel it in your gut, right? He had pity and compassion is another way that it translates. Let's read on verse 34. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, the Samaritan said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell on the hands of robbers, Jesus said. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So I want to make a little note here. When we hear lawyer here, these are not barristers, right? These are not like people who are like in terms of legal, the way we think about it today. The law was actually the Jewish law, and so they were pretty much religious scholars, right? So you could think about it in that context. What we see really interestingly happening here in the story, though, something that we, I think, miss a lot when we talk about the Good Samaritan. Let's even talk about how we use the term the Good Samaritan. Today we talk about the Good Samaritan as a kind stranger, right? Somebody who came along and did something for somebody that they don't necessarily know. Right? And it was admirable of them to do so. And we say, that's a good Samaritan. We hear that in the news a lot. A good Samaritan today, da, 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 right? But here's the deal. Samaritans were not strangers. When we think about the original listeners and the original audience of this text and the way that Jesus was telling this story at the time, the Samaritans weren't strangers. They knew who the Samaritans were. The Samaritans were people that were kind of cultural cousins with the Jewish people. They worshiped the same God, but over time there was a rift because the Samaritans and the Jews started to see things differently. They started to have difference in theology and the way that they practice their theology, even to the extent of agreeing on which mountain you're supposed to worship God on, right? So they, they knew each other. They were not strangers in the way that we think about it today. So whenever we read Samaritans, Samaritans are never the strangers, the people that we know is the people that we have animosity towards. And I ain't got to say the categories of people. We all know the types and groups of people that we label and we ascribe stereotypes to. I know this isn't going to be a popular part of the message, but we all know it's true. We all know the types of people out there that we push to the margins and we say that you are not good enough or you are this way and you are that way. And we create these divisions and these lines in our world. The Samaritans are never the strangers, the people that we know and we try to push on the side. And that's why following Jesus is so risky because he starts to introduce these kinds of characters and people. That it's a matter of risking our pride along the way of following him. What's interesting is that the Samaritans seem to joyfully take care of this man. And he says, listen, spend all the money that I need to to get this man in here. And I got to go somewhere. But when I come back, if you spend any more to take care of him, I'll, I'll foot the bill. I'll take care of it. The joy that it must have taken for him to look upon somebody and to say that this is a person in need. And what is my God calling me to do? All right. So to embrace the joy of the Lord, right, we have to embrace the risk of a life in God. And I just want to look at three dimensions of this risky life in God. By just looking at what Jesus asked the, the scholar, he says, well, what does God require of you? And he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is something that a good Jewish person recited over and over again. 
And so I just want to look at these three dimensions based upon the greatest commandment, right? So firstly, take a risk with God. We have to take a risk in our relationship with God of actually having a relationship with God. To have, joy, to have the joy of the Lord, we have to rest our lives in the hands of God, which could just be summed up in a word called surrender, right? We got to release control of everything that we think that we can control. The risk may be having to leave behind a life that we thought would bring us joy, possessions and things that we thought would make us happy, but it just didn't work. You know, again, kind of referencing back to how Jesus is telling these parables, I had a friend who said a couple of weeks ago, she said, well, why, why these stories ain't clear-cut? Why Jesus just don't give you a straight answer? And a lot of times in the Gospels, he don't. He, don't. he just be telling stories, he can be telling riddles, and then he leave you to figure it out and to apply it to your life, right? Which is very frustrating. Overrated experience. But why is it that Jesus doesn't tell these stories? He could have given a straight answer. He could have told you what the point was. But that then means that we, again, have control, and we don't surrender ourselves over to the mystery and the discovery of what God is doing, not just in this moment, but moments in the past and moments to come, right? The lawyer was trying to be quick-witted. He was trying to outsmart Jesus, and he refused to surrender to the simple command that he heard over and over again, to love God with every fiber of your being and to do the same for your neighbor, right? He wasn't willing to risk being wrong or being right. He really wanted to see how he could trip Jesus up. And in doing so, he really disadvantaged himself to seeing what God may have had for him if he had just let go and surrender, taking the risk on having a relationship with God in the full way. So taking a risk in our relationship with God. The second one, taking a risk with the self, right? So it says he wanted to justify himself when he started to try to trip Jesus up. He wanted to justify himself. Okay, well, what is behind this justification? What is it that you are trying to justify? What is it in your life that compels you so much to want to have to justify yourself in front of Jesus? Maybe there's the risk of the facade that we want people to see. The way that we've curated our lives in such a way that we hide the bad parts so that people can just marvel at the good parts, right? Or maybe it's that we are constantly on this fight to live up to the expectations of others. And maybe they've been placed on us from childhood and we just haven't let go of those things. But maybe if we just go back to the garden and we look for a second at the way that how that story unfolded, how God created everything and looked upon all of it and said, it is good, we could see that we are a part of that narrative, that God created us in God's image to behold the beauty that is God. There was joy and delighting in who God created us to be. The Prince of Egypt, y'all remember that movie, right? A fantastic movie. Um, there's a scene in there where Moses um, is with his father-in-law, Jethro. And um, Moses has this really challenging time where he's obviously left out of Egypt and he's not sure what he's doing. He's in the middle of this identity crisis and um, his father-in-law wants to celebrate him for saving his daughters from all kinds of peril. And Moses sheepishly turns it on himself and says, I've done nothing in my life worth honoring. I've done nothing in my life worth honoring. And then Jethro begins to sing this beautiful song to Moses in front of everybody around a campfire. And a part of the lyric says this, so how can you see what your life is worth? or where your value lies 
You can never see through the eyes of man. You must look at your life. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. We have to take a risk on ourselves, knowing that we were beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Knowing that God wants us, that we are cared for, that we are loved by the one who created us. But it starts by taking a risk in surrendering to God. And then we take a risk in the self and seeing just how beautifully and wonderfully made we are. And then finally, we take a risk with our neighbors. Because when you experience what God has done for you, it's really a shame to keep it to yourself. It's actually unlike the character of Jesus to do that, right? If we're going to follow him, we have to follow in his ways. Now, some might say that the Levite and the priests, right, when they're walking on the road and they walk by the Samaritan, some of the scholars say that he, they did that because they could not touch him. Because if he was dead, they would be considered ceremonially unclean, and then they would have to go through a whole process just to restore themselves to be clean in, in, in um, the spiritual sense, right? Um, there are also some scholars that say, well, maybe they were walking by him because they were afraid that it was just going to be an ambush, that that road would have been so treacherous and dangerous that would have been, you know, a problem to stop there because you could be next, right? But when we think about the way that the story would have been told in Jesus' time, the people would have expected something completely different for how the story would have ended. So Jesus tells the story, and there's this succession, right? He's saying that the Levite comes along, and he walks by even though he sees the man there. And then the priest comes along, and he walks by the man that's lying there almost dead. And what the people would have expected with Jesus to go on and say was, and then there was a regular old Jewish person who came along, right, and helped this man. But what Jesus did was flip that entire thing on his head, and he said, a Samaritan, the ones that y'all don't like, <laughs> the ones that y'all just talk stink about, he was the one who stopped. He was the one who said, hey, let me help this dying person. Even though he could have risked being jumped, even though he himself could have been religiously unclean, he stopped. And he said, I'm going to help this person because my conviction tells me that I must do so. What Jesus is saying here, and I think he taught us by his example, really, is that I'm going to risk my life for you as well. Jesus risked a lot while he was on this earth. He, he risked his standing in society because, or in his faith community because he talked about things so differently. He talked about a way to have a relationship God, with God in ways that really disrupted the status quo in ways that they were not comfortable with. And then he went a step further by touching the untouchables, by healing them, by giving them liberation and healing and, and bringing them out of their woes and their troubles. And you were not supposed to do that. You weren't supposed to touch people that were on the margins. Don't touch lepers. Don't touch sick people. Don't touch people who are said to be prostitutes. Don't do that. We don't associate with them. And Jesus breaks down that barrier as well. And then ultimately, the greatest risk is that Jesus said, in spite of the way that y'all is carry on sometimes, I'm going to show you just how much God loves you, that I will risk my life for you. And to the point of death, God's love will extend to you. Following Jesus, friends, is not just about doing what he says, but it's about living the way he lived. It's about following in his footsteps and saying, every day, how can I become more like Jesus, even though it makes me feel uncomfortable? So as I begin to close, what are we willing to risk for the joy of the Lord? Maybe you have to persevere 
like Paul's companion so that other people can experience the love, the mercy, the joy of God. Tell your story. Be excited to go and share it even amidst your troubles because there's somebody that's probably going through the same thing you're going through. Maybe we have to reflect on the ways in which we avoid risk, like the lawyer. Or we try to justify ourselves and we say, well, this is the reason why I can't do this thing. You know, God, God know my heart. You know, God, God understand. God, God know why it is I decide that I'm going to do something that is in his will. Right? Maybe we have to really take that look within and to see if are there ways in which we are resisting following the way of God. Or maybe it is that we have to risk how we see the Samaritans around us. And again, I ain't got to say the categories. We all know it. It's just the pink elephant in the room, right? Who are the people that you don't regard on a good day? And maybe they are the people that you need to reach out to in your family, in your friend circle, in society, wherever. You know where they are. That you look at them and you say, these Samaritans, these people, right? And how can you live in the joy of the Lord in such a way that you share God's love with them and be a beacon of light to them? You may be asking, this is heavy stuff, how does this bring me joy? <laughs> it takes a lot of energy, I think, to live in a way that's just all about self-preservation. It's exhausting to always have to find ways to preserve the self and to look out for me because we live just around people. And so doing that requires a lot of mental capacity and a lot of energy from us, I think. And I think Jesus was kind of zoning in on this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 26. We like to say this all the time, but he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The word that we see, soul, right? In Greek, it's the word that we get uh, psyche from, your mind. What does it make sense for you to get everything you've ever wanted under the sun and to lose your mind, to lose the very essence of who you are and who God created you to be? It's not worth it. It does not bring you joy. It'll bring you a moment of happiness, but you'll realize at the end of the day, man, I really missed out on how God could have been working in my life. I didn't live a life of joy. What this world offers us ultimately cannot suffice. It just won't fulfill what God can. So why not take a risk on the one who took a risk on us? Choosing joy, friends, like we've been saying throughout the series, Choosing joy is not easy. It's, it's very risky, but it's a choice worth making. <laughs>